This morning's scripture passage is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Please follow along in your Bibles or on the screen behind me. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I I thank you that um, that you are such a good, good father. A good father who gives good gifts. uh, A good father who um, at the end of the day, you care more about our character, our sanctification, than you do our comfort. Lord, I I praise you, Father, that you cared more about our eternal comfort um, than our temporal comfort. I thank you that you sent Jesus to um, live the perfect life that we couldn't live and we can't live, to take place on the cross that uh, our place on the cross to die in our place I thank you Jesus that you willingly took all the wrath of the father that we deserve because of our sin even though you were sinless I thank you God for the victorious resurrection of Jesus that he now sits at the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling, working your goodwill and purpose out in our lives. And um, Lord, I pray that you would, um, even as I'm speaking here this morning, that you would uh, convict me, that you'd break me, that you'd encourage me, that you'd do that with each of us, God, that um, we'd know more of of our sinfulness, but yet know more because of our sinfulness, we know more of your love for us. And God, that that uh, truth of your amazing, unceasing love for us would compel us, would motivate us to want to live our lives, to conduct our lives in joyful submission to you because of who you are and what you've done. Not getting anything in return because we have already received everything. Every spiritual blessing blessing in Christ Jesus. So Holy Spirit, have your way with us. Prepare our hearts. God, um, use a a fumbling, um, stammering man like me. God, please uh, just use me, speak through me. I pray that I bring no offense this morning. 
We pray these things in the powerful and saving name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And God's people said, amen. That was an amen, right? I like it. So we are, uh, if you're new with us here today, I see a couple of new faces. We're teaching through the book of 1 Timothy. And um, what a great book it is. It's, it's, the, it's the, the blueprint for the church, um, not for the building, but for the church, the people, a blueprint for uh, the family of God. And today we're in chapter 3, as, as, uh, as Tony read, chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, where Paul describes the mystery of godliness. And godliness is another way of saying uh, um, godly conduct or godly behavior. And if, if you're like me or if you have, a, you have an upbringing like me that was maybe a little bit legalistic uh, where you were uh, given a set of rules without the why behind the rules, um, sometimes that conduct or that behavior, you, you kind of bristle at that a little bit. But I want to tell you and I want to remind you of is that uh, today, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are fully loved. You are fully accepted. And the best way that we can respond to that is by presenting our lives as a living sacrifice, as it says in Romans 12, 1, to conduct ourselves, to behave ourselves in a way that it brings God glory, not because it will increase our standing or improve our standing, but because our standing has already been perfected and cannot be improved anymore. Anybody ever seen the uh, miniseries Parenthood? Any Parenthood fans out there? How about This Is Us? Yeah. I mean, some of you are like, you know, kind of ashamed. Um, we, Nancy and I, we've got, we got enough bandwidth in our schedule for, well, I've made bandwidth in our schedule for the Rockies games. We watch a lot of the Rockies games, 12 games above 500. Woo! Um, and then we, we watch a series. We watch a, a, a series like one at a time. Um, like one, and we just finished Parenthood like six months ago. But, but, but we, we watch all six, um, not semesters, what are they called? Seasons. We watch all six seasons in about 48 hours. We have uh, a lot of no-dose coffee, uh, donuts, and just kind of like binge through it. Um, and if you know, if you've watched it before, you know the, the Braverman family, which is the family, uh, four kids, parents, um, they, they had a certain family identity. They had a certain code of conduct that drove this dysfunctional family. Um, they had a, this mission or code of conduct that, that drove them, and this imperfect and immoral family was driven by this common mission to spend time together. It's kind of cool. To spend time together, to forgive. Um, there's really some biblical is, um, um, principles in this show, to forgive, to strive for unconditional love. And in addition, these four children, these four adult children seem to be driven by their father's love. They wanted to actually um, uh, please their dad, their imperfect dad. In the Hardy family, we have a, an identity that informs an unofficial mission or code of conduct. If you know um, the Hardys a little bit, you know that they're loyal and you know that they're hardworking. That's, that's, you know, for, for better or for worse, um, my three kids are loyal and they're hardworking. We would often say in our home that hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. But we, so we had an identity, we had an unofficial mission statement or code of conduct. As God's children, 
As brothers and sisters in Christ, part of God's family, you have been given an identity. And you've been given a code of conduct or a mission. And I would, and I would just tell you today that if you, um, if you are in a place where you are living in disobedience to God, or it's, it's not that you, that you want to live in disobedience, but you're living in disobedience at some level. You're not loving your wife as, as Christ loves the church. You're not respecting your husband. You're, you're exasperating your children. Um, you're not being a good employee or employer. That somehow, in some way, it ties back into your identity. That you're not standing in your identity. That you don't understand your mission or code of conduct from the Lord. Because behavior is formed by our identity and by our mission. Let me see that again. Your behavior or conduct is informed by your, by, by your identity and mission. Our behavior, though, is motivated by the love of the one who gave us both our identity and our mission. Today we get to dig into these three verses that explain Paul's purpose. It's a, it's a purpose statement for the entire letter that he wrote to Timothy. And this letter is not just for Timothy back then in 65 AD, but it's for us today in 2017 in Windsor, Colorado. It's got something for every one of us today, no matter where you're at. Paul had a concern. Paul wrote this first letter to Timothy to inform the church on how to behave and order itself in the face of false teachers, in the face of bad doctrine. And in today's passage, which is the heart of the entire letter, Paul gives this purpose statement, this purpose that says that I write to you, Timothy, so that you might know how you ought to, verse 15, how you ought to or must behave or conduct yourselves in the household of God, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul tells us the purpose of the letter with one broad brush imperative. Excuse me, yeah, imperative. And that's how we are to Uh, conduct ourselves as Christians. The conduct that Paul is calling for from Christians in Ephesus and here today is informed once again by our identity and our mission and or conduct and it's motivated by love. Paul says in verse 15, he says, I'm writing you these things so that you, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. I want to just pause there for a minute. The household of God, the family of God, the, the oikos of God. This isn't talking about the church building. It's talking about the church family. And this uh, theme of family in the church, God's family, runs all through the scriptures and it runs all the way through this first letter to Timothy. Already in chapter 3, verse 4, Paul said of the elders, we looked at this two weeks ago, he said to the elders that you must manage your households well. Why? How else could you manage the household of God if you don't manage your households well? In chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, Paul urges Timothy to treat other Christians in Ephesus as members of a family. He says this. He says, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters. Paul talks about the church bearing the family responsibility of caring for widows who have no physical family to support them. 
The, the picture of the, of, of the church that Paul presents here is that of family. And I ask you today, have you ever thought of it that way? You've, you, maybe you've heard the church called the family of families. I remember back when, when Nancy and I first started going to Mountain View back in 1994. We, we were not coming from a, a church background. I grew up Catholic. She grew up Methodist. Um, we were, after we got married, we just kind of went off into the world. The Lord started drawing us. We started um, exploring church. Um, we started to better understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we arrived at Mountain View, uh, they had something called flocks, which were community groups. Horrible name. Were they flocks when you were there? Use a great name? Yeah. I mean, it means a lot. Yeah, it means a lot. It's not very, yeah, it's not very missional, though. Not very cool. And, and, and Tom Harkis, I, we, I remember telling Tom, I said, we, we love what God is doing in our lives and our hearts. We love the way that he is, uh, this, this new identity that we have. But, you know, we don't have time for a flock. We don't have time to be in a small group. We've got, I've got six brothers and sisters. I've got nieces and nephews. Nancy has um, three sisters. We, we both had parents living at the time. And Tom made a case from Scripture, a good case in Scripture. Someday we're going to actually do a whole sermon series on this. That, that in Scripture, in the book of Acts, there really is no delineation between biological family and church family. It's, it's one and the same. It's It's integrated. For, for a biological family to, um, a Christian family to live by themselves um, and not in the context or the rhythms of the church family is found nowhere in Scripture. The model of family not only has these structures of leadership like we explored the last couple of weeks with elders and deacons, but it also informs the members of the church how to relate to one another. We can choose our friends, but we can't choose our family. I mean, we can change churches, and a lot of people do. They change churches when the heat gets turned up in the family. We don't leave family members, right? I mean, some of us don't see family members for years, but they're still our family members. But in the, in the church, in God's household, we have a tendency when the heat gets turned up, when there's um, relational conflict, we just jet and we go to another local church rather than working it out where we're at. The, the question in a family is not do we like one another, but are we willing to love one another? This is not a consumer choice. It's a divine mandate. And this picture of the church, this family, also suggests the nature of the church's composition. A healthy church has generational diversity. One of the things I'm most excited about this church is a generational diversity. I love it. I love that there's, that there's all ages, that there's great-grandparents in this church. I love it that there are um, little ones in this church. And that wasn't the case five or six years ago. I was, I was looking at, I was, uh, at a meeting with Brandon and Pat the other day, and Pat said like 60% of this church is made up of young families, like 35 and under. And I looked at Brandon, and I go, man, that's weird, isn't it? Because like five years ago, it was the McNeils, it was Mitch Hardy, and I think maybe the Pences. And that was it. That was it, under, under 30 years old at the time. But by God's grace, we've got a multi-generational church, and those of you that are older, you are needed in this church. You are needed in this church. I can't fathom a church of under 30-somethings. I'd have to have tighter jeans. I'd have to have more tattoos. And I can't fathom a church of just people my age 
Who would we invest in? Who would we have to admonish nonstop? Just kidding. I love millennials. I'm a baby boomer that is in a millennial skin. I was telling Stephen the other day, I, mean, I was just admiring his tattoo, and I said, if I was your age, I'd have sleeves like up both sides. But I can't do that right now because it'd take too much ink. I got skin sagging and all that, and they'd have to like stretch it while they're, while they're, while they're inking it. That's kind of what a picture that is. The, the church, this family, is, it's a village, it's a community that helps shape our lives and the lives of our children. If you remember our, um, when we had the uh, baby dedication thing, we have everybody out there stand up and commit to come alongside these families and help. That's what a church family does. Again, there is no such thing as a biological family oper- that's, that's professing Christians that operate by themselves outside the household of God. Another thing is that all Christians should have a home. There should be no homeless Christians. People who say, I can be a Christian without being a part of the church are missing the point. And they're missing a huge blessing. They're missing an opportunity to grow. Because the closer we are to one another, the, closer, the more we what? We're going to have opportunities to seek forgiveness and to forgive. At least people have told me that one as they've drawn near to me. You might as well say that, that you could be born without being part of a family. And that, that might be true. And it is true for some unfortunate babies. But who would choose that? Being part of a local church is part of what it means to be a Christian. Like marriage, living as a Christian is something that can't be done alone. For the church, it's a family. It's a household of God. And then Paul continues, Paul goes on, and he says, he, says after, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the family of God, which is the church of the living God. They are the church of the living God. We are the church of the living God, that our God is very much alive. He is, at, not only is he alive, he is at work right here among us. And he is a living, divine presence that distinguishes the church from every human assembly. And without the presence of the living God, a church is nothing but a self-help group or a mere social club. There are other um, good organizations that might even do more good than the church. I've been a part of Rotary before because I really just needed an outlet to, find, to, to hang out with non-Christians and hopefully have the opportunity to share the gospel. But it's not the same. It's not the mission of Jesus Christ. We're not a social club. We're not a self-help group. We are a family on mission together. The presence of the living God among his people is perhaps the central covenant promise of the entire Bible. God says, I will live with them and walk among them. The Lord says, I will be their God and they will be what? My people. And Paul says in Ephesians 2.22 that Christians are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by the Spirit. There's no low-ranger Christians in Scripture. We're to do life together. And it's a beautiful thing. What an incredible thought that is, that if you want to find God in the world today, the Bible says you need to not look to the chambers of commerce. You not, not need to look in Washington, D.C., or Harvard, or, or Hollywood, or even the mountains of Colorado, even, God, even though God made them. 
If you want to find God in the world today, the Bible says you are to look in an ordinary gathering of Christian believers in a local church, which is, which is the gathered people of the living God, where two or more are together. God is with us. Additionally, healthy families live in line with the family code of conduct or mission that was laid down by the head of the household. God's family, we have a code of conduct. We have a mission. Not this church. I mean, we, yeah, we've got a mission statement, and we've got a vision, and we've got core values, and we've got a strategy, but, but your goal in life should not be to submit yourselves to this man-made organization called, called um, this corporate entity, but to God's creation, the church. And so he's got a, um, God's family has a code of conduct or a mission, and it's described here at the, verse, at the end of verse 15. He describes the church's code of conduct or mission to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. And I love saying the word buttress. I'm not even sure what it means, but it's a, it's a pillar and it's a buttress. Here's what it means. Uh, buttress um, is, is foundation. Um, but, but really, it's, it's to be looked at as a, as, as a protector. Identifying the church as a pillar and a buttress or protector of the truth is a way of saying that God has entrusted to the church the task of promoting and protecting the gospel. You see, you see a pillar back in that day, the, the temples would have pillars that would raise the roof high so that everybody can see it. And we're to raise the truth, the gospel high. That's we're, we're to promote it or to um, preach or proclaim the truth, and we're to protect it. And that was close to Timothy's heart because there's false teachers. This, this architectural imagery that Paul gives us presents the church's responsibility of holding up the gospel before a watching world, probably with a view uh, to repel the attack of false teaching. The role of advancing the gospel is divinely given to the church. We partner with a lot of parachurch ministries. I was saved through a parachurch ministry, and, and we thank the Lord for parachurch ministries. But, but the, the role, the primary role of advancing the gospel is divinely given to the church, and that's why here we only partner with parachurch ministries that want to partner with the local church. When I was saved uh, through, um, I'll just say it because I, I love the organization, but right now, unless they've changed, I wouldn't give them a dime, and that's Young Life. I was saved through Young Life, that God used that organization. But I was saved at age 15, and I didn't set foot into a Bible-teaching church until 15 years later. That Young Life was my church. One of the things I like about Fellowship for Christian Athletes, just to give a quick plug, is that, that they have actually part of their mission is to partner with the local church. And that's biblical. So the living church family has been appointed to uphold and undergird the truth that God has revealed through Christ. And how is this to be done? By conduct in the household of God that is consistent with, conduct or behavior that is consistent with and springs from the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the mystery of godliness. And there's not a lot of, of uh, imperatives here today, but just... The way a family operates, when, when people are hurting, when family members are hurting, when family members are wayward, when family members are in sin, 
When family members are depressed, family brings them in and cares for them. We care. We, we, family also um, serves together. We, we love one another. We grieve when other family members grieve. We rejoice when other family members rejoice. You know, there have, it never ceases to amaze me. This is not a big church, but we've got, I don't know how many people we got here. I mean, I think I said it last week. I think we got um, 367 with two pregnant women. That's two in the womb, something like that. But what, what I never um, cease to amaze me is this is that every week I find somebody that's hurting, and they're hurting silently. And brothers and sisters in Christ, family, Windsor Community Church family, as you're talking to one another in the foyer, when you're out um, shooting guns together or golfing together or fly fishing together, which I love doing all of those, and I'm going to engage in all of those. Let's look deep into one another's souls. How are you doing? How are you really doing? To care, family members, like you would ask your own son or daughter or your own mother or father. What's the motivation to conduct ourselves in this godly manner? It's in verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness or the mystery of godly conduct. Paul says there is a mystery to godliness or behavior. Mystery doesn't mean mystical. It's not something that needs to be uncoded. It means that it has been hidden or veiled for centuries. It was hidden or veiled to, the, to God's people, the Jewish people in the Old Testament. But it's no longer hidden or, veil, uh, hidden or veiled. It's been, been, it's been, God has been manifest. The way to salvation has been brought to light. Paul says there's a mystery to godliness or behavior. In saying here that the mystery of godliness is great, Paul is presenting the person and work of Christ as the key and the motivation to all godly conduct. We're not being challenged to pursue a, a self-generated Western bootstrap godliness. I talked about this a couple weeks ago. It's not goodliness. Rather, it's a call to live out the amazing realities of the gospel. And by, by virtue of Christ's saving grace, all those who believe in him and have been united to him, we also share in his godliness that you are godly. You may not act godly, but you are godly. I may not act godly all the time, but I, or, or 49% of the time, but, but I am godly. His, his godly record, Jesus Christ's godly record, becomes ours by his grace. But in the thankful response of regenerated hearts, we are compelled to live out personally the godliness Christ embodied. We are called to live out who we already are in Christ. Paul's call to godliness is thus both gospel-generated and it's gospel-sustained. If you have Christ, if you have faith in Christ, you possess and are possessed by the very mystery of godliness. And you can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, live this out. In the context of this family. And Paul lays out this mystery of godliness that is great. In verse 16, he says, it, 
He appeared in the body. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by the angels. He was preached among the nations. He was believed on in the world. He was taken up in glory. So the first thing he says is that our Savior's manifestation in the flesh, he talks about Jesus was manifest in the flesh. He, was, he, was, he appeared in the flesh, which refers to that point in time when the eternal divine Son of God took on human flesh. If he was not fully human, there would not have been a propitiation for our sins. There would not have been an atonement because he had to be fully God and he had to be fully man. He had to have the ability to sin. He lived the perfect human life that we couldn't live. The mystery of godliness is the story of Jesus Christ who came into this world as a baby in the manger. He lived like one of us and he died the shameful death of a criminal. Next is Jesus' vindication by the Spirit. Which, in his resurrection from the, which, which is his resurrection from the grave. Having put, being put to death as a blasphemer and as an insurrectionist, these charges were utterly refuted when Christ raised from the dead. If he did not raise from the dead, we'd still be dead in our sins. In Jesus' vindication, his resurrection served as a declaration that all his claims to be God's only begotten son are absolutely true. Next, he was seen by the angels. This highlights his ascension to sit at the right hand of the Father where he enjoys the worship of the heavenly host. He was seen by those in the angelic realm, but he was not seen by everyone on earth. So next, he was proclaimed, it says, among the nations. He was proclaimed um, by Paul and the other apostles. Paul was the, the apostle to the Gentiles, praise God, because you and I, unless you have Jewish heritage, you are a Gentile. Jesus' perfect life, his sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection needed to be proclaimed. Next, it was believed on by man in the world, and as a result, many have been set free from the power, penalty, and guilt of sin. Belief is necessary for saving faith. Belief and trusting in Christ are necessary for saving faith. Proclamation leads to belief. Uh, Paul wrote this in Romans 10, uh, 14 through 17. How then will they call on him, Jesus, in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him, Jesus, of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And this isn't talking about um, the professional pastor on Sunday morning. This is talking about the, the priesthood of the believers. That we all have the, the great responsibility and privilege to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God is in the business of saving people by his grace through the proclamation of the gospel. I know he doesn't need us, but in his providence... And in his kindness, he uses us. And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? Verse 15. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Go. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news or proclaim the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing. And hearing by the word of God, the word of Christ. 
And finally, at the end of verse 16, he was taken up in glory. And this once again reminds us of Jesus' ascension. It reminds us of his finished work on the cross. And reminds us that he's at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, praying for us. Where are you at this morning? I've talked to a few of you recently. Some of you are uh, uh, frustrated in the sanctification process. That you just really want to um, honor and glorify the Lord. But you keep stumbling along the way. Can I remind you that you are forgiven? There are others of you that are, are, that are apathetic in the sanctification process. That you just don't really care. You put your faith and trust in Jesus. And you just chose to just live any way you want to live. The cure to both of those is understanding your identity as a son or daughter of the God Most High. To understand that you have been adopted into His forever family, not because you're lovable, but because you are fully and forever loved. And I'm convinced the, 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 the longer that I walk through this life and the more that I learn about God in this book, that the solution, the, the, the foundation of, of uh, and, the, and the motivation for my sanctification to, be, to look like Christ, to conduct myself in a way that honors and glorifies Him, is understanding who I am in Christ. And how much I'm fully loved and accepted. In this new family, for some of you it's not new. And I'm not talking about WCC, I'm talking about God's family. You have brothers and sisters in Christ. In this family, in this local expression of this family, we have a code of conduct or mission. And what we're going to do in this family is we're going to continue to protect the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to continue to stand firm on the word of Jesus Christ. And when there's, when there's something that we don't understand, um, we're, going to, we're going to pause on it until we better understand it. And we're going to proclaim, not just protect, but we're going to proclaim the mystery of godliness, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our motivation, the love of Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, as he, as he has been, um, he's been beaten, he's been thrown out of cities, he's been shipwrecked, he's been close to death. And the question is, is Paul, why do you keep doing all that? Why do you do what you do? And Paul says this, he says, it's for, for the love of Christ controls me motivates me, compels me. For the love of Christ motivates us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Because Jesus has died for me, I'm going to die to self. And I'm going to live my life in joyful submission 
to the one who died for me. And he died for all that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And I know I say this every time we have communion, but I can't think of a better time to celebrate communion. Is talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 10. Yeah, 16 and 17. Paul says this, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we are many. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. When you think about the body of Christ, when we remember Christ's brokenness, Christ's uh, sacrifice, laying down his life for you and I to pay for our sin, isn't it interesting that we are called the body of Christ? And the body of Christ is not to be splintered, it's to be united, particularly the local expression of the body of Christ. And I'm sure it grieves the Lord that there's so much conflict and separation between the greater body of Christ as well. 